Now, listen, you came up with musical skills and were in a band, right? The LA right. Teens. And so that's an important factor here. I want to point out that, and you touch on this, I think, in the book a little bit, which is you know, the early days of the recording industry, right? Engineers, you look at EMI, right? And the lab coats and studios had their staff, right? Their personnel. And certainly you came out of that world and then became an independent engineer, an early successful in-demand independent engineer. And so you have your musical skills, your music knowledge, your music capabilities, how did that inform and how did you incorporate those musical sensibilities into producing and then engineering and mixing? Can you talk about that? Yes. My parents moved to Los Angeles area my senior year of high school. And I met some guys that were starting a band and I played keyboards and primarily organ. And I said, you know, do you think an organ would fit in? And they said, let's try it. So we started writing songs and we finally saved our pennies and went into a local studio and cut some demos. And one of the kids' mothers knew someone who knew someone that was in the music business. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that someone was a guy named Gary Usher, who was actually good friends with the Wilson family of the Beach Boys. In fact, he wanted to be a Beach Boy. Uh, that obviously didn't happen, but he did write 409 and In My Room with Brian. Whoa. <laughs> so he liked our demo and asked us to come in for a meeting. And his office at the time was at Capitol Records. And of course, I'm jumping up and down, you know, because I assumed that the Beach Boys recorded there. They were on Capitol. Uh, and so when he took us down to see the studios and I said, is this where Brian works? And he said, no, he works across town in a studio called Western. So he had just made a deal with MCA and he signed us to MCA. So we recorded at Capitol Studio B and he brought in a session guitar player named Richie Podler to augment the band. And this guy was phenomenally <laughs> talented. And while we were talking, he told me he was building his own studio. And so in those days, you did four songs and put out a single or two. And if you got lucky with a hit, you ran in and cut six more. Suffice it to say, we only recorded four songs for MCA Aww. for DECA. <laughs> so then I went over to Richie and I said, you know, we got dropped. And he said, oh, you guys were great. He said, look, I'll get you a deal. Go see this guy, Mike Curb. He's going to go places. And I went, oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> And uh, so we signed again, still had to have our parents sign because I wasn't 18 yet. And uh, this is where it all happened for me because here we had recorded at Capitol and I did an organ solo in Brian's room at Western, which was needless to say, uh, nerve wracking for me. But here we recorded in these two modern, beautiful, two of the best studios in Hollywood. And now Richie's studio was a lot funkier and whatnot, wasn't all shiny and pretty and whatnot. But we did our first track, came into the control room, he hit play, and I looked up at those speakers at the sound that was coming out. And when the track was over, I turned to Richie and I said, can you teach me how to do all this? Pointing at all the equipment. He said, no, I'm teaching Cooper. Get out there and do another take. But that was the aha moment, as I wrote, that I knew right then that I wanted to know how to do that because our band had never sounded like that. And I realized that the big difference was the emotional added value from a well, well-recorded track, which Richie was ahead of, way ahead of the game in 1965. That's a really important point in the book. And I, I related to it. And I'm glad you mentioned that. You had the aha moment where what came out of those speakers affected you yeah. differently. 
and I wanted to know it. how to do that because all the thoughts that were racing through my head, you know, we had just been in these great studios that had top engineers and so on. And here in this funky little place, I've got more emotion than I had in all the recordings put together. So when the band failed, which unfortunately it did, I went out on my own and was fortunate to come across my second mentor, a guy named Toby Foster, who was a very technical oriented guy and also a very good engineer, especially with orchestras. And he was a tech at a studio in Glendale called Whitney. I went back to college. I'd taken two and a half years off of college, which my Jewish doctor father was not very happy about. Yeah. And uh, I went back to college and uh, would come every day after school to Whitney and start asking Toby questions. You know, what is a condenser mic? What's a dynamic mic? Till he couldn't take anymore. And he would say, okay, enough, enough, go home, see you tomorrow. And uh, <laughs> that was fabulous for me. But where the technical side meets the uh, musical side meant that engineering came very easy to me, especially with Toby being the great patient teacher that he was. He could feed me as, as much as I could take, at least in any one evening. And so as things developed for me, you know, only thing I wanted to do was write songs. And if I couldn't be an artist, if I didn't have a band, our band broke up after the second record deal fell apart. I at least wanted to maybe produce records. If, if those really good engineers at Capitol and Western couldn't do it, I wanted to figure out how to do it so that I could do it. You know, it's funny. I, I mean, I can't not think of myself as an engineer, but I still think of myself more as a musician than an engineer. And I think that has really served me well in terms of uh, especially mixing. Well, look, that comes through in the book because you talk about, you know, so many either cautionary tales or success stories where the music guided the work. Right. And people will look at your credits and often they will see mixer. Right. Even though you have obviously other credits as producer and recording engineer, but very specifically, you've been tasked with mixing. I wanted to ask you about the specific challenges of getting, you know, back in the day, it would be a reel, right? You're getting a reel of tape or now digital files. Right. And not having perhaps been there at the session. Not in some cases, I know you described not even getting track sheets, right? Where you're opening up a Christmas present, right? You're opening up a, oh, let's, what, the, what is this, right? Take the question to the next level, you know? So you've got this musical set of skills and you've got this emotional toolkit that you bring to the table. And then you got to put that reel on the studer and hit play, right? How do you approach that? You know, what's that look like for you? Well, the first thing is, when I heard what I heard out of Richie Podler and I wanted to learn how to do it, I ended up in a very Mickey Mouse studio, but it was a place to begin learning. And the best part of it was that's where I met Toby Foster, that as I said, he would go on to teach me all the basics. The good part about that studio was it was only two track. The bad part was he had egg cartons on the wall. He had two condenser microphones, two professional microphones. He had a simple mixer with no equalization and only a spring reverb for echo. But it was two track, which meant that everyone that came in there recorded everything live. Yeah. And within six months, the owner was having me do all the sessions because he saw that I was better than he was, which wasn't saying much, believe me, but, but <laughs> I could balance music. And that's all it took at that point, once you learned how to align the tape machine and put the microphones. So eight months into it, I'm complaining to Toby about the fact that I'm working with mediocre musicians and mediocre equipment. And he said something that 
I hated hearing at the time, but was so true. He said, what you're learning while you're doing this with the Mickey Mouse equipment and the Mickey Mouse musicians and singers is going to so pay off when you're on good equipment with great singers and great artists and whatnot. And oh, that's true. So back to the point, yes, the, the idea of balancing music. And to me, I make it very clear in the book, I really believe in my case, maybe in all cases, I think it's a God-given gift. It's like when I'm around super, super talented people and being a guy of faith, I will talk to them and say, you really have a great gift. And oh, thank you, Bill. I appreciate that. I'm just curious, do you know who gave you the gift? You know, that's how I open up the conversation sometimes with him. And mixing, balancing for me is that, uh, you know, it just, I don't know how it happens. That was one of my fears in writing the book about any of the technical stuff, because the biggest part for me is that gift. It just happens, the balancing thing. It's always been there, except twice when it wasn't there. I don't know if you've hit that chapter yet, but it's painful as it is. There were two times in my life when I sat down at the console and I knew what everything did and I started doing what I normally do and I knew I couldn't do it. It wasn't right. I was not about to get happy with it. And hmm. um, it really hurt. Both of them hurt. The first one was Melissa Manchester, who several years earlier I had mixed her first album, Midnight Blue, which was the hit that brought her into the world. And I couldn't do it. The second one was even worse for me because... It was Maurice White of Earth, Wind & Fire, one of my favorite bands of all time. And the opportunity to mix something for Maurice, which he was the brains, for those that don't know, he was the brains behind Earth, Wind & Fire. And as I always say, George Massenberg, who mixed those Earth, Wind & Fire records, is a very good friend of mine. And I would go, and in the 70s, I would maybe stop in. And, oh, what are you doing, George? Uh, Earth, Wind & Fire. Oh, and you mind if I stop down? And I'd go down, and, <laughs> and I'd sit over his shoulder. And he was doing an excellent job, don't get me wrong. But I just wanted my hands on those faders in the worst sure. way. <laughs> just let me, I sure. want that. So now I have the chance with Maurice's solo album, which was very much in... EWF record, and uh, it, it just didn't happen. Very sad. But anyway, yeah, so it's always been a, a very natural kind of thing for me. Hmm. I'm fascinated by that in general, you know, the idea of instinct, the idea of gifts, the intangible. And sometimes that is lost in the world of technology, you know, because ones and zeros and faders and buttons and, oh, do you have these converters, et cetera, et cetera, as opposed to hitting play and, ooh, that hits me, you know, yeah. that emotional impact. And, and, and there's so many things that go into that because I started professionally at the end of 8-track. And when you recorded, you couldn't put one instrument on a track. You had to put sometimes several instruments on a track. And you for sure had to balance the drums up on usually two tracks at the most if it was going to be in stereo. And 8-track, we were still doing a lot of mono drums. So there was a lot of balancing to be done on the spot. And there's no tomorrow. Once those instruments are locked in, that's it. Well, we went on to 16, to 24, to 48 in, in the analog and early digital world. And now on a hard disk recorder, uh, the sky is the limit. But what you're talking about also is the fact that it's become such a cerebral thing as opposed to instinctual. For me, when computer mixing started and what computer mixing was in the late 70s into the 80s was moving faders. There were consoles or a system that you could buy that you moved the faders and a computer caught those moves and then you went back to the top of the song and hit play and there the computer made all those same moves and you could adjust them and change them and whatnot. 
And when I started on that, I had a really rough time letting that thing help me because it was fighting me. It was fighting me. It was like, wait a minute, you know, and I'd start grabbing it and I'd take over and because it, it didn't feel right. It, if you ask any of my friends or my wife, I'm the least dexterous person you've ever met. I mean, I'm a klutz <laughs> from the word go. Until you put me on a console with faders and I don't care how many there are, it amazes me. I'm just all over the place. So that's what was the problem. I was fighting those moving faders and whatnot. Now, I finally made my peace with them, which was a very good thing because we went on from there to Pro Tools where everything is resettable, you know, to the max and whatnot. And it made that learning curve much easier for me. And so I got very proficient on Pro Tools, which was a necessity. I realized early on that things are going to change. Technology is going to change. I mean, it sounds so silly now, but I remember in the early 80s when I had in my studio the computer that did the moving faders. That's all it did. And I was sitting there with the assistant once while I was typing something in onto the computer. And I said, you know, I wouldn't be surprised someday if we're not making records completely on a computer. <laughs> and at the time, that sounded silly. And now I today, know. it yeah. you know, what? Did you have outside toilets too? What do you mean? No, but it wasn't that long ago, you know. It was... <laughs> I have to ask you about some drummers because there are several that are connected to you in your career. I mean, I have to. I would have friends that will chase me down and beat me if I don't mention these people. Number one, Jeff Porcaro. Yeah. You know, I know that you did a lot of work with him. And if I'm correct, you were close. Yeah. Yeah. I came across all of the Toto guys, Steve Lucas, the guitar player in his book. You know, he was very complimentary to me because I hired him when he was 19. And Jeff was probably... 22 or something or three when I first worked with him. But um, just my favorite, you know, the human being and the drummer. And, you know, there's drummers that are excellent and have a certain feel and whatnot. Then, then there's guys that can add so much to a session. And that's the category that Jeff is in. He's a musician's drummer. You know, the old joke that I'm sure you heard is that, you know, a drummer is a guy that hangs out with musicians. But yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> uh, I would punch anyone in the mouth if they said that about Jeff. He was just the greatest. Yeah, we were close. And uh, one day he came in for a session, something I was producing, and he said, why don't you go out and play and let me get the sounds? And I thought, there ain't no way I am going to play two hits on a set of drums with Jeff Percaro in the room. <laughs> Not oh, even man. close. But uh, yeah, you know, after his passing was, well, it was rough on a lot of people. It really was. And, yeah. you know... Uh, Lee Sklar, the famous bass player, he interviewed a bunch of drummers about Jeff, and he picked me also to do the interview. And I told him I had to write it because as I started thinking about what I was going to say at home, I started tearing up. And sure enough, even reading the stupid thing on the video, I teared up. Uh, and this was several years after his passing. But uh, yeah, you know, I always knew it. Jeff never said it in these words. But once at a party after his departure, his brother Steve introduced me to someone at the party and said, Jeff, this is Bill Schnee. He was Jeff's favorite engineer. Ooh, and man. boy, did that make me feel great. That is absolutely something special. Holy cow. Did you ever watch his instructional video? Of course. Yeah. And you know the microphones that are on the toms? Sure, of course. Yeah, right. those it's 251s. The thing, these right? are the, yeah. for those that don't know, one of my favorite tube microphones is a microphone that was built by AKG but marketed through Telefunken. 
and it's called a 251. And it was my favorite, favorite first tube mic that I got into. And I got into these mics through Toby, who said, you should listen to these tube mics. I think you're going to like them. And I bought as many as I could get my hands on. And it was easy because so many people, studios and whatever that owned them, radio stations, they wanted the new transistor version because it was newer. And right, as right. I learned, <laughs> as I learned, newer isn't an analog, especially newer isn't always better. Digital, it's another thing because we keep learning and getting better. But analog, it wasn't always better. So I, these microphones, I paid four and five hundred dollars for. I have a standing offer right now for twenty thousand dollars for as many as I want to sell. But I had so many, and even back then, when his instructional video, they were probably worth ten thousand a piece. I had so many that I had Toby internally pad the microphones so they could take level and i put those on the toms but only on a very few guys and jeff is obviously one of them but it's so funny because not just drummers but anyone that was interested in jeff Procaro and they see that video and, and if they talk to me in anywhere ask me a question it's like were those really 251s on the toms you know no one could believe that someone was that stupid yeah, to put I that know. expensive a mic on a it, tom it's rare it's a rare sight i know and the thing i would like to add about jeff for those who are uninitiated or don't realize you know the breadth of his work is not only the stuff that he's famous for but so many sessions and dates that he played on that you just, you don't even realize like, oh man, that's Jeff Beccaro and drums and yeah. just so many records Absolutely. And, and from young age too. Yeah. Uh, let me follow that up, of course, with Steve Gadd. Some of Steve's most famous tracks, I mean, you have worked with, and I love the tales of, I think it's with Richard Perry, right? Where, oh, yeah. he, where he, he sort of asks to get yeah. Gadd on the date and then just crushes yeah. it. You, you had know? to bring up Asia. I knew you would. And, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm going to get hate mail, man. Yeah. So um, I didn't, you know, I didn't name check it. So there you go. Uh, I didn't, you know, ask about the stick click or anything, Bill. Yeah. So give me a break. <laughs> so, um, so when Gary Katz asked me if I wanted to record the next Steely Dan album and I got off the floor, he told me that I was, it was going to be a revolving door of drummers. I said, oh, cool. That's it. So you'll be getting a new drum sound every few days. And one day, this guy, Steve Gadd, was coming in. Now, I knew Steve. I was very impressed with Steve from 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover, which has that great drag snare thing going. Yeah, yeah. So I was very excited to work with him. And we cut two songs the first day, both great. And I called Richard Perry, who I hadn't been working with for a while, and told him, I said, man, gosh, you know, he's here and he's everything I thought he would be. And he said, do you think I could do a session with him? And I said, well, I don't know. We start at two o'clock. Let me ask Gary, the producer. So I asked Gary and Gary was highly respective of Richard. And he said, okay, sure. But he also knew Richard's ways and Richard had a tendency to take forever to get a track. So he said, but you can't go over. The guys will kill me if we don't start on time. So I said, okay. So I called Richard back and said, yeah, you can do a 10 o'clock tomorrow morning but uh, we've got to be done on time. So and this is Leo Sayer, right? This is the Leo Sayer session, Yeah, right? so he shows up the next morning with a little guy from England that's very jovial named Leo Sayer, and we set up to do this track, and Leo goes out to sing the guide vocal for the band, and this was one of those times, you don't always know it, but this was one of those times when practically the first run-through, I went, we're cutting a hit record right now. 
just the way he started off with a, you got, oh, I can't get up there anymore. Uh, great. <laughs> uh, yeah, the melody and whatnot, but right there with it, listen to it if you've forgotten it, listen to that song, You Make Me Feel Like Dancing, and hear Steve Gadd's drumming, where once again, that drag snare plays a tremendous yeah. part. It's just an absolute big you know, part of the groove that might not have been the same thing with anyone else. Amazing. Amazing. And I love the fact that, and I can almost picture you in a way, like when it's coming out of the speakers and you're like, oh yeah, oh man, is it, we got a hit. Like yeah. uh, Jim Keltner, right? On oh, yeah. so many other sessions and great player. Fabulous. Got a sound, yeah. you know. You know, being a wannabe drummer and studying drummers and drums as much as I have, the idea of feel comes into play mm -hmm. and what does that mean and i think and i did a pretty good job in the book of describing it although i think i could do it better now second edition um about what <laughs> you know what goes into that and it's how the brain controls the four appendages the two arms and two legs with the instruments that they're playing where some people will just have a natural bend for like keltner for instance his backbeat is back. <laughs> his backbeat is behind the beat, left to his own devices. Don't make him play to a click, but if you just let him play a groove and then measure it, you will find his kick drum that and ones will be right on it, but that two and that four are gonna be just a little bit back. <laughs> and that's just something that I just personally love. You know, Jeff was good at that as well. Other drummers that are still great drummers, incredible, Jim Gordon. Mm, yeah. yeah, opposite stays right on top of the beat, right on the front edge of that. Those twos and fours are right there, if not leaning a teeny bit. Doesn't rush necessarily, but that kind of thing. And still a great, great drummer. And machines don't do that. No. Last drummer, I promise, Vinnie Caliuta. <laughs> like one of my favorites, of yeah, course. Yeah, just amazing. Just an incredible, well, all of these that you've mentioned, just incredible human beings. Great story about Vinnie. <laughs> is he came out of the Mothers of Invention, and he is a jazzer. You know, he's one of these guys like Simon Phillips, another one of my favorite. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, you know, time signature, what's that? <laughs> you know, crazy ones too, just insane crazy ones, and can shift from one to the next, you know? And you had to do that when he started. Sure. So Yeah, with Zappa, I mean, that was like, sit in the chair and I'm gonna break you, and Vinny yeah. could do it all, yeah. So <laughs> he comes to town, he gets off the road, and he comes to LA to start doing sessions. And I had never worked with him, I don't think, when this story happened, but I'd heard all about him, that he's too many notes, because most records don't want that many notes. Mm. You gotta kind of yeah. find, quote, the groove and stick with it yep. kind of thing. And he couldn't help himself. So I got <laughs> called to produce a uh, end title for a Richard Pryor movie. And they had another producer scheduled to do it and it fell out in negotiations, but it was already booked. And the session was booked with all the musicians. And so the music supervisor called me and said, now here are these people, you know, but we have plenty of time. We can change if you want to change any of them. And lo and behold, Vinnie Kaliuta was on it. And I knew I was cutting a, an R&B-ish kind of song and I didn't want too many notes. So I said, yeah, I think I need to just change Vinnie to another drummer. And I think Jeff wasn't available. So I got Carlos Vega, who was another very great drummer. Mm -hmm. Sure. So perfect. So we get to the studio and I look out and there's two sets of drums and in walks Vinnie Caliuta. And the music <laughs> supervisor comes, I, I go running up to him and I said, Vinnie is here. And he goes, oh my gosh, I'm sorry. I forgot to cancel him. It's okay. I'll go soften the blow and tell him we're going to pay him. 
So he goes out, I hide. <laughs> he goes out and tells him that, and that's that. Now you jump ahead probably six years, seven years. I'm in my studio and I'm cutting a track with Vinnie Kaliuta, and we just did a real driving song because he had learned, you know, everyone saw that he was an incredible musician. So a lot of the other guys on sessions were telling him, you got to play less notes. You just got to settle down and play less notes. And so we had just recorded him and he had done a great track like that. And we actually went to the uh, men's room and we're standing next to each other and uh, too much information. <laughs> and I said, Vinny, do you oh, remember great. about six years ago when uh, you showed up at record plant for a film date and you weren't needed and they sent you home? And he went, yeah, I do. I said, I was the producer on that. He goes, you were? And I said, yeah, I didn't think you could do it, you know, because it was an R&B thing. And, and he said, you're absolutely right. I couldn't back then. And it worked perfectly, like I said, because we had just done a driving R&B track 10 minutes earlier. So it worked perfectly. He said, you were absolutely right in doing it. You know, I would have done the same thing. You know? Oh, man. You know, I, it's a good segue. You know, thank you for that. I'm just laughing, you know, Vinny in the bathroom talking about that. It's funny. I want to wrap up with you. You know, you brought up a good point about producing, and I wanted to ask you about that because you've worn these hats, you know, especially I was just looking at your, your discography. And earlier, as you started out, it was a lot of producing, right? And you're, you're doing that. And then you settle into, you do a bunch of mixing for a while. And, and then you've done more producing throughout your career like that. And I wanted you to talk Talk about wearing those different hats and, and what they mean to you. Mm -hmm. Well, I've always said that both recording as an engineer and mixing as well, but let's just say engineering and producing are both servants' roles. We are there to serve the artist and their music. My job is the engineering, but I'm concerned about the music and what will make the music better and never get in the way, whatever that means. Producing for me is a lot more fun Engineering is great when it's something really, really great to record. Some of those jazz things I've done, obviously Asia, you know, those are wonderful. But the problem for me always came with a lot of engineering is that, you know, I love engineering an orchestra session uh, with 60, 70 guys, whatever. It's actually easier than a five-piece rhythm section. Nobody believes me, but it really is. <laughs> because it's true, if you're in a great room and you're going to be in a great room, and you've got a great orchestra, great notes on paper, and a great conductor, it's laughing. You set up the mics and you sit back and it just develops in front of you. There's not a whole lot to do. It's quite easy. Anyway, <laughs> so they're both service roles. I'm a control freak. So, you know, like I said, from that aha moment at Richie Podler's in the LA teens, I wanted to learn how to control sound so that I could give that kind of emotion. And nothing makes me happier. Some of the response to the book have been people that are familiar with my work and they talk about the emotion that's in my mixing and nothing could make me happier because that's what shows me that I really succeeded at what I was trying to do. But being the control freak that I am, sure, producing is the ideal. You know, Richard Perry told me, you know, I started producing, then I got with Richard and we started on a string of incredible records with Ringo and Carly Simon. Barbara Streisand and then the Pointer Sisters. And um, he was the one that told me, giving me advice. He said, just make sure that you're working with artists that are worth your time and talent. And I think I took that a little too much to heart because I think I was actually too picky. I should have maybe taken more things than I did. I didn't want to do it unless it was, you know, met too many criteria. But I'm not complaining believe me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I loved Piers Plaskett's story about he tracked 
something with the Pointer Sisters, and it went away, and it came back from your hands and ears, and it sounded completely incredible and different. And he, he was like, oh, Bill Schnee. <laughs> I love that story. Very you know? sweet. It's like how it can be transformed by, you know, a talent. You know, that, that was another problem I thought I might have writing the book because a lot of my credits are just for mixing where the artist wasn't even there. I met the Pointer Sisters because I did mixing in Richard's studio. I met them while they were working in the next studio, but they never came to mixes. And so, so many things, I never met the artist. But uh, I think a part of what was great and still is, is when somebody works on a record for a long amount of time, giving it over to fresh ears can be great. I may get, or any other engineer, may get a totally different take on it than how they've been looking at it. And I would find that all the time. A lot of times a producer would come in and listening to the mix and he'd go, what is that? I put that on there? Wow, I, you know, <laughs> yeah, you put that on there. I just made it more pronounced instead of in the background. You know, it's funny. I don't want to misattribute this quote. My understanding is it's from Sting. And he said, you don't finish mixing an album, you give up. <laughs> and, uh, what's your reaction to that? <laughs> um, that's not me. Let's just put it that way. Well, let me rephrase that. <laughs> it can be me for sure. Especially one of the problems that I have as a producer is I don't do well mixing my own stuff. However, I have tried using another engineer and that works even less well. <laughs> so the problem I think is that I try too hard and I've gotten a lot better at it because some friends would tell me, you know, you get to the mixing of your stuff and you're treating it like you've just taken it in from someone else where you start having to EQ everything and you're EQing the sounds that you've already gotten, stop it. Stop trying to reinvent the wheel. You, you did fine when you recorded it and I just put it together. So that's what I, I try to do. That's amazing. I mean, it's funny because you're reminding me a little bit of Vinnie Caliuta at a drum clinic once would say, you know, student raises his hand and says, Vinnie, I'm just, I'm blown away by this thing you're doing. And, you know, it's like so complex. And, you, and he goes, oh man, you know, you just do it. Yeah. <laughs> of course, no one in the room can do it. So, uh, well, you yeah, know, it, nobody can. <laughs> it's exactly the, what I was talking about earlier. You know, that's a gift. And like I said, he and Simon are the two for me like that. Like I said earlier, you know, the feel of a drummer is based on how the brain works with those four appendages. I don't know what goes on in those two drummers' brains, but it's not normal. <laughs> yeah, I, of course, I'm a, a big Simon Phillips fan. Uh, I'm a big fan of The Who and Pete Townsend. I know his work with them. And, you know, of course, all his more modern fusion stuff. And uh, it's just an amazing player and a huge kit that he brings to every date he does, you know. Absolutely. Toto, of course. He played with Toto and those guys. Yep. Yeah. So amazing player. Listen, uh, speaking of talent and gift, you, sir, have been kind enough to share your time and your gifts with me today. So thank you. Thank you for writing your book, Chairman at the Board, Recording the Soundtrack of a Generation, Bill Schnee. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a blast. Thank you for listening to the East Main Podcast. This is Brian Brodeur. Please don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends and leave us a good rating. We'd really appreciate it. If you want to drop us a line, you can, of course, visit our website, eastmainmedia.com, and follow us on social media at East Main Media. And as always, please stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening. Thank you.